the most successful teams are the ones where people feel safe to speak up and, and to give a diverse opinion. And, uh, and also the most successful teams apparently are the most diverse. We have a diverse uh, cultural background and a diverse age profile and diverse gender. You actually have the most productive teams. You're listening to the Class Acts podcast, an initiative of UCD Conway Institute, a research institute based in University College Dublin. My name is Elaine Quinn. In this podcast series, we want to introduce you to scientists at the heart of fascinating new research here in the Institute. What motivated our researchers to pursue a career in science? What journeys have they taken along their career path? What areas of research are they pursuing? How have their careers been influenced by mentorship along the way? Some of these scientists have long established research groups in the Institute, while others have just begun to build their own teams here in UCD. All of them have spoken about their work in our weekly Conway Lecture and Seminar Series, or CLASS for short. Our host is Dr Owen Cummins, Assistant Professor of Physiology in UCD School of Medicine and a Conway Fellow. Owen leads a research group studying how carbon dioxide and oxygen affect cellular behaviour. Owen is also passionate about educating the next generation of scientists and medics and actively contributes to equality, diversity and inclusion initiatives within UCD. He was inspired to create the Class Acts podcast to share the many and varied backgrounds and journeys taken by Conway researchers on their routes to scientific success. In episode two, Dr Owen Cummins chats with Associate Professor Rory Johnson from UCD School of Biology and Environmental Science, who is a Conway Fellow. Rory shares his career journey that spanned the globe from the UK to Singapore to Spain to Switzerland and back to Dublin. Rory talks about his research vision in UCD, which involves using advanced technologies like CRISPR-Cas9 to investigate non-coding RNAs, an exciting and emerging area of biology with significant therapeutic opportunities. Good afternoon, everybody. Very welcome to the podcast. The interviewee this afternoon is going to be Associate Professor Rory Johnson, who is based in the School of Biology and Environmental Science here in UCD. So good afternoon, Rory, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Owen. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's uh, very exciting to be here. So we're going to launch straight into it and, and probably bring you back uh, a few years to, to your childhood as a, as a young boy growing up in Dublin with dreams and aspirations. So I'm curious, uh, did, did you always know that you wanted to uh, pursue a career in science or is this something that you, you happened upon along the way? Well, I think like many, after I watched Top Gun, I wanted to be a pilot. That uh, Top Gun <laughs> profoundly influenced me for about a year uh, of my life and made me want to be a pilot. And then I think I never explicitly wanted to be a scientist, but I was always, I was always fascinated by science. I was always had my, my nose in a book. Uh, about all kinds of different topics, and um, as I became a teenager, it got I got more and more interested in in in, in science, particularly in physics, and uh, so and then I fell out of love with it. So I've kind of fallen out of love with science a couple of times, but always always made my way back again. Like lots of uh, strong strong relationships, they they have their they have their arms <laughs> and their off phases, Ups and downs. Um, and, and interesting. 
interesting now that you find yourself in the in the school of biology that your initial interest was was primarily in physics. Is that linked to the the Top Gun element? To you know trying to figure out aeronautical elements or when I was in school, I loved maths and I loved physics, and uh, I always felt at the time like it was the most the the first amongst all the sciences to some extent. I wasn't so interested in biology. In fact, I didn't I didn't study biology for my leaving. But then I, I did physics in university and I realized that physics to me was a bit like, it's a bit like the Olympics. Uh, you know, some people are very passionate about certain sports, but when you really get up there to competing, you realize that you, you know, you have different innate skills, so to speak. And when you're up there against the big boys and my physics didn't exactly match up, or at least I didn't consider that it did. And so I kind of became a bit disillusioned. And um, I was just extremely lucky that, in my physics department, they had a biophysics program. And, and uh, when we did our final year projects, I chose uh, Stephen Curry, who's a, actually a, quite a high profile um, Irish scientist working. He was at that time in London. And we started doing molecular cloning in his lab, which I had no idea about, just cloning plasmids and, and cloning expression plasmids for crystallography. And I, I became completely hooked on this molecular biology. I'd ne- I just had I'd never seen anything like it before. And, I, and, and then I really... Uh, had a, a, a real flash of inspiration. I thought this was something. This was something I could do every day, and uh, it started from there. And now, I, now I'm doing you know really basic biology. Whereas in, 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 in Stephen's lab, we were doing kind of crystallography, so it's still biophysics. So I've made a complete transition. Quite a transition over the over the course of your course of your experiences. So, and and was that biophysics primarily the topic of your of your PhD in the UK? Well, I mean, that's another funny story because then I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, I was completely kind of rudderless at that point in my life. And I went backpacking. And while I was backpacking, I thought I have to do something when I get home. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I kind of thought I'd just apply for a PhD because I couldn't think of, you know, what direction my life was going to take. I kind of postponed the question for a while. And then I didn't really know anything about biology. I had no idea that the, the range of stuff you could do in biology. So I just applied to some biophysics programs and 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 because i'd done physics it, it really helped me a lot to get into them but then once once i was in the biophysics program i realized actually i didn't really like biophysics very much i, I was uh, i ended up on a, on a nice phd program for for structural biology and uh, again i realized I, I don't have i don't have one of these brains that's very comfortable visualizing 3d structures like some people do and and i had a bit of a crisis working out how i was going to deal with this uh, problem I'd landed myself in. And, and again, I was another very lucky incident as I met uh, a guy called Noel Buckley, who was um, studying more molecular genetics, kind of a gene regulation in the nervous system. And Noel was a great guy. He's still active now. And uh, and I became really interested in, in how genes are switched on and off. But the problem was that Noel was not doing biophysics. And he, you know they'd listed his name on the people you could do a project with, but no one actually ever expected that a student we were doing rotations. No one sure. was ever expecting the student would want to do their PhD with them. And so there was a bit of a, a, a problem when I wrote down his name as top of my preferences. But, it, uh, you know, in, in, in credit to the people running um, the Wellcome Trust program at the Asprey Centre in, in Leeds, they were, they were flexible and they didn't stand in my way of, of doing what I wanted to do. And that's, uh, I've always respected them for that. They could have easily, you know insisted I did a structural biology project and I didn't. It's kind of a series of <laughs> a series of coincidences and bad decisions that's ended up with me where I am today. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely not the the most linear approach that uh, perhaps when I was expecting, and it seems to actually be a, a recurring theme amongst our uh, the success, <laughs> successful people that I, that I've been interviewing over the last uh, last number of weeks is that it's it, it's not people who have necessarily laser focused career ambitions in, in a very very specific uh, area that have, have risen to the top. That it's a combination of serendipity. Uh, pursuit of things that you're interested in and uh, and, and some good fortune uh, along the way. And it, the, the point you make at the end is a, is a good argument for multidisciplinarity that, you know, there's a lot of potential overlap between different areas in science. And sometimes perhaps we get a little bit uh, segregated into our own little box about, you know, biophysics or bioengineering or structural biology, whereas, you know, many of the, the skills that can be learned in, in one discipline can be applied successfully in, uh, in another discipline. Yeah, I mean, uh, something that always really surprises me actually about the students that I get in the lab now, now that I mentor younger people, um, particularly like master's level, is that A, I'm always so impressed at that they have got a focus. I mean, the majority of students I've had seem to know pretty much what they want to do and what they like doing. And I always am really impressed with that uh, maturity. I don't know if maybe all generations think that the next generation after them is more mature, but I always feel my students are much more mature, uh, certainly than I was then and probably than I even am now. And, um, and for the ones who are a bit lost, I always try to, uh, you know, lay out the different options that they have and help them to make that decision. Cause it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a, it's a point in someone's life where you can really help them a lot, you know, or people get lost and they drift off and it's a pity to lose, to lose great people because they haven't got a, a little nudge or a little uh, good conversation at the right time in their life. So it's, I think it's a very critical time in people's lives and maybe we don't always take it seriously enough how important it is to that moment after the masters, particularly when someone's deciding should they stay in science or should they leave and do something else. So. And, and and was it a, a specific conversation or a nudge that, that led you uh, away from the UK and, and over towards Singapore for the, the next phase of your career? No, I just wanted to get Something out of the UK. <laughs> I just wanted to get out. I wanted to go... See some uh, of the world. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'd, I, at that point, I'd been there for eight years already because I'd done my undergraduate and then, my, and then I'd gone up to Leeds for the PhD and I just... Uh, I'd made fantastic friends there, but I just I had to get out and go see some more of the world. And, and um, I had a few different options. I was very anguished about to, the different options I had where to go. And, um, and, and, and the, the position in Singapore was with a collaborator who was very close with my PhD supervisor. And they were gently nudging me in that direction. And, and they, uh, you know, it, it made a big difference in Singapore. They, they made an effort to to try to convince me to go in, in kind of in contrast to the other labs who seemed to not really care either way if I showed up or not. In Singapore, they were quite keen for me to join and uh, that was certainly a, an influence. And it was it was an exciting time there. I mean, Noel Buckley, I, I remember when Noel came into the lab one day in my PhD and was holding a paper, which was the, the 454 sequencing uh, publication in Nature, which was the first technique for high throughput sequencing and he was waving this paper, which, you know, it's quite, quite rare for Noel to do this kind of thing. He was waving this paper and says, this is the future. This is really the future. And, and I had, I, actually, I couldn't really comprehend what, what he meant because I wasn't, I, I wasn't mature enough in, in understanding the, 
the limitation that DNA sequencing had at that time on people's experiments. I hadn't, I didn't grasp for quite a while why this was important, but he, in Singapore at that time, they were, they bought a lot of these machines and they were really pioneering. They were doing amazing stuff there. They had some really brilliant people kind of developing all these techniques, which we take for granted today. A lot of them were developed or their precursors were in Singapore at the, at the Genome Institute. And, um, and Noel said to me, he said, you should learn this. Th this is going to be good for your future if you learn this. And uh, happily, I listened to him. I, I listened to his advice because I haven't always listened to people's advice, but th that was a good piece of advice and it, it stood me in good stead. And so then when I arrived there, they had a lot of these sequencing machines in the basement and, and um, everybody was trying to work out how you could use the sequencing to do, to ask interesting questions. And so... So then I started out, we were, we were doing this, this technique called CHIP-PET, which is uh, chromatin immunoprecipitation, you know, for its mapping transcription factors. And um, in, previously, we'd been, the readout of that had been microarrays. So to do it high scale, to make large scale maps of transcription factor binding, use microarrays. And with sequencing, you could just sequence the material directly. But uh, at that point, it was incredibly expensive because although the, you know, the sequencing was very early, so it was very expensive. And also you had to, they were actually using robots to, they were cloning it and, and, um, and spraying the colonies on, on massive plates and picking the colonies with robots and then sequencing them. So it was, you know, they had incredible financial resources then and they, they, they spent it, but they knew they spent it well. Sounds like a, an exciting place, an exciting time to be there as well with the sort of the advent of these new emerging technologies, some of which, you know, like you said, we, we, we've taken for, for granted and have really transformed the, the way we do, we do science. And then the, the, the next step really was to, to, to make your way back towards Europe. Yes. Yeah. You, so you, you, you learned what could be learned within the Singapore environment and maybe tired of that quicker than you did of the UK a few years in Singapore and then heading back European direction. I, I had a good couple of years in Singapore, but, you know, maybe a bit sooner than other people. I felt like I wanted to move back to Europe and I didn't have confidence. I di it didn't occur to me to apply, you know, to an independent position at that point. I, I didn't feel like I was mature enough. I, um, so then I was looking for, for jobs. And then, then the, the next completely fortuitous meeting uh, of my life happened where, you know, my whole, the whole point, the whole direction of my life after one meeting changed 180 degrees. And that was, um, I went to Barcelona for a conference when I was working in Singapore. And um, I was hunting, I had, a, I, I had other interviews actually in Europe, but uh, when I was in, in Barcelona, I looked up who was there and I, I found this name, uh, Gigo, who, uh, Roderick Gigo, who was working at the Center for Genomic Regulation, which is this famous institute on the beach that many people might have uh, seen. And uh, I wrote to Roderick to ask him if I could meet him. Uh, and Roderick being Roderick, he's, he's always so busy that I had an appointment with him and I showed up and stood in the corridor outside his office for about 45 minutes and he didn't appear. And the people in his lab were very friendly and gave me a seat to sit on and chatted to me. And, and, and kind of, I think it was quite routine that people showed up to meet Roderick and that he wasn't there at the same time. <laughs> and, um, well, then I, then I met him. I remember going in and I remember quite clearly the, the feeling I had that here was a person who was so busy and, uh, he was polite, but he wasn't particularly, I did a little presentation on my laptop. He wasn't particularly interested in what I was showing him. 
And then he was running out of time. And just at the end, I put in a couple of slides, which was on the topic of long run coding RNAs, which I, was not my main postdoc uh, project, but was something I was getting completely hooked on. And I, I kind of started a side project, um, actually constructing our own custom microarrays and profiling these these novel genes uh, in embryonic stem cells and trying to trying to knock them out. And it was only kind of, I think it was the last two slides of my presentation. I was just rushing, finishing up. I could see his attention was wandering back to his email. And uh, I just got onto that slide and suddenly his attention perked up and he dropped everything. I was looking and he said, what's this? What are you showing me? What have you done here? And his whole attitude changed. And it turned out that his lab had also been working on the same topic and neither of us had published anything. And, and it was kind of like almost really, really similar uh, interests and technologies we've developed. And, uh, and th and that completely changed, and then he asked me to come back a week later for an interview, and and um, and the rest is history. So if I hadn't have had that meeting with Roderick, I don't know I don't know where I'd be right now. But it was a very lucky lucky incident. So you have to, I guess, the message to listeners is if <laughs> you have to uh, get lucky sometimes to make yourself available. It sounds very serendipitous, but again, you know, you, maybe you make your own luck when you're when you're in town. You go and, and look up person who who might be a, a good contact down the line and paying attention to that talk, the, you know, the, the, the final two slides, as you say, <laughs> if you decided to leave them out and focus on, on something different, we might might mightn't be having this conversation here today. Yeah, for sure. After your time in, in Barcelona, you moved to, uh, to Switzerland as a as a group leader over there. So, is that is that your first experience as being the the lab head and having to sort of recruit your own team members and and, and take very much that that senior leadership role within the laboratory? I, I was I worked in Roderick's group for about uh, six, almost seven years, and. And uh, I had this this really great position, or you know, a lot of people wanted this type of position, which was staff scientist, where you you were officially a member of the faculty, although you were not fully independent. And um, I was allowed to to write grants, and I was allowed to. I, I also had a fellowship, and so I had a, some degree of independence. But I was really also supporting Roderick. So I think we fitted together very well. He quite, you know. He, I think he quite liked the situation that we had. I backed him up and I helped him out with some things, but he gave me the space to to also explore what I was interested in. He was extremely generous. I've always said it to him. He was he was extremely generous with me and, you know, gave, cut me a lot of slack that that many other people might not have done. And I think, again, if it, if it hadn't been for that uh, aspect of his character, then, you know, I wouldn't be here today either. So I was very lucky in that respect. And But eventually I realized that... Um, I, I had to move on because I was, you know, I was getting I was getting grants rejected with people saying uh, we all know that this is uh, Roderick wrote these grants and put someone else's name on it and it's cheating and stuff and I you know that makes you very angry when you've poured your heart out into a grant and someone says that it's your boss who wrote it so I, <laughs> I realized when that happened I had to I had to uh, put some distance um, between us sadly which was you know he he told me and and you know everybody told me and it's what I had to do but it was. Um, it was a tough transition, but the good thing was I'd learned, I, you know, made a lot of mistakes in a safe environment, you know, so I'd kind of practiced at doing a lot of the things that you have to do um, as an independent researcher. And, and uh, I, I'm always amazed actually, because I started very late and, you know, I started the lab when I was uh, 37 or so. And a lot of people start labs when they're 30 or even earlier. And, 
they don't have the they don't have the margin of error you know to make mistakes and they don't have the role models to 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 teach them a lot of the skills that you need and um in my case you know i i, I wouldn't have been ready so much earlier and i was very happy for all the stuff I learned from Roderick. So I learned an incredible amount from him. So I, I, so when I started my own lab, I did feel to some extent like, you know, I wasn't overconfident, but it, it wasn't a huge stressful experience. And I didn't, luckily I didn't make any major, you know, I didn't make any major mistakes at that point. Uh, and um, I, I really have him and, and a few other people, you know, in CRG who I discussed with, who gave me advice about how to start a lab. I did actually go around and ask a lot of people uh, when I knew I was going to start, I asked them what what is the biggest regret that they had when they started their lab, and so I did a kind of poll of people to uh, understand what you have to focus on. And so then it went very smooth. And the other good thing was that I had this fantastic team of young students who were working with me in Barcelona, or who had worked with me, or I knew, and um, I managed to convince all of them to come with me to to Bern. So we started off already with a team. Who, who who I knew and who knew each other more or less, and I think that uh, was really a huge a, a huge benefit because I think when you start from zero and you get all these fresh people in, you you don't know you don't know who's good, you don't know the strengths and weaknesses, they don't know the techniques, they don't know the background, so it, we really hit the ground running. Uh, it sounds like a, a great way to to hit the ground running because I mean, from my own personal experience, I think trying to recruit and identify strong PhD candidates is one of the more difficult jobs uh, a group leader has, you know, from a technical point of view, but also from a, a lab chemistry point of view. So having worked with them before and they having worked with each other before, you're you're sort of reducing the risk of uh, of personality clashes and and things like that as you go on. But what's very clear from what you've, you've said so far, Rory, is, is that uh, mentorship has been a very important element in your in your career so far. So having benefited from the likes of Noel Buckley and, and, and Roderick before. So do you feel, um, what sort of messages from these mentors do you try and uh, recapitulate in your own role now as a as a mentor to, to your own students and, and postdocs? Do you feel like you're standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of what you've gone before? Or, or do, you, do you feel like you've learned some, some new perspectives along the way to, to supplement your previous mentors? I'll tell you one funny thing that someone said to me once is that Cedric Notre Dame, who's a, a senior group leader in, in the CRG, who has a lot of contacts with, with, with Ireland, actually. Uh, I was talking to Cedric about when I was considering recruiting uh, my students from Barcelona to Bern. And Cedric said, because I was saying this is a good student and I didn't know whether I should bring the student or not. And, and Cedric said, the good students, they're the ones who will make you famous. It's not you who makes you famous. It's the good students who make you famous. And so, um, I mean, that was a great, you know, I mean, behind that is he's really saying that, that your only scientific success rests on building a good team. Sure. And um, and that was when that's always been the priority. I think if you, you can mess up everything, but just make put all your top priority and top efforts into trying to get the best people into your team, and they don't have to be the necessarily the, the smartest or the hardest working, but the overall the overall best. And if you can do that, then you can afford to to make a lot of other mistakes. I think. Um, and then to try and keep them happy. And, and so th- 
I mean, the mentors I had, I mean, another mentor I had, I should mention is Ian Wood, who was a, who was a, a junior professor in the same lab when I was doing my PhD, who also inspired all of us students actually uh, day by day. But um, I think it's not, it's not explicitly things that people tell you. It's more, it's more the way, the way these mentors, the way that you see them interacting with people. I think you learn from them indirectly. I mean, I don't think it's so much, I mean, apart from a couple of exceptions, like I mentioned, they, they didn't sit down and say, you have to do this, this, and this, but it's rather sure. year by year, you're observing their, their, their activities, probably subconsciously and, and, and to some extent modeling yourself on them for the, you know, not, not only for the good things, but, you know, you can say that there's good mentorship by actually observing the stuff that people do badly and trying to, <laughs> trying to avoid replicating that. But I mean, I, I think it, in my case, it's just um, watching the way, the way people act. I mean, particularly uh, Noel and, and Roderick were so, you know, in the end, they're, they're so kind-hearted to the people in their lab uh, and, and gentle, you know, uh, uh, very forgiving of people's mistakes and very protective of the people in the lab. And I think that's something I always try to, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to be soft with people. I think you have to be tough. Sometimes you have to, I mean, another thing I've heard, which I agree with is you have to kind of push people and make people push themselves to reach a new level. I mean, I don't think you can let people just go along at the same rate. You have to inspire them to, sure. to, to, to get to another level. But uh, at the same time, I think it's, you know, you want to make a kind of warm, nest where people feel safe and uh safe to make mistakes and safe to say what they think um but i mean that's not just me i mean if you read all these studies by google and these companies that spend so much money looking at successful teams that's the kind of constant amongst all of these studies is that if the most successful teams are the ones where people are say are feel safe to speak up and, and to give a diverse opinion and uh, and also the most successful teams apparently are the most diverse happily yeah. enough. And so if you, you have a diverse uh, cultural background and a diverse age profile and diverse gender, you actually have the most productive teams. So it's uh, objective in that respect. Yeah, you can see how that's really important for scientific integrity in the, in the times that we live in, when sometimes studies are um, reviewed skeptically and so forth. And, and, and in many cases where maybe the science has been has not been done correctly. It's not necessarily a case of people uh, completely falsifying data. It's that perhaps they've been working in an environment where they didn't feel like they could make a mistake or they didn't feel like they could uh, could speak up and, and, and express an opinion. So, so I would I would very much second the the importance of of that culture for uh, for a productive uh, productive group. So you set up the the gold lab. So that's the that's the name of your lab. It's a, it's a great name, by the way. And and the the focus of this group uh, is is very much understanding or trying to understand uh, the area of long non-coding RNAs, which is a, an emer emerging area of interest in biology. So so can you just tell us in sort of relatively lay terms? What are long non-coding RNAs and, and why do you think that they are interesting to, to spend your, your scientific career or at least this portion of your scientific career pursuing? It's actually, it's, it's just after the 20-year anniversary of the sequencing of the, of the human genome or the first draft of the human genome. If, if you go back into the, the papers during the 1990s, just, just leading up to that, there was a huge debate amongst researchers as to how many genes 
how many genes a human being has. And of course, at, at that time, because people weren't thinking about non-coding RNAs, when, when people said genes, they, they meant protein-coding genes, um, which is still a, a bit of um, a preconception that people have today. And if you look at the literature, people, I mean, people had this first this idea that humans are more complex than other species. I think we can say that fairly, or some other species at least, and that people expected that humans would have more genes than other species. And then there was these kind of sweepstakes and, and debates in the literature and papers and estimates about how many genes a, a human being has. And actually, it's quite interesting to see the, the range because they were going up to, I think, 100,000, and there were people were actually gambling on it. Uh, people thought there was 100,000 proteins in our genome and so on. And so the first great surprise since the human genome has been sequenced is that we have far fewer genes. So we have about 19,000 protein-coding genes, which is really right at the bottom of, of the estimates in the 1990s. Okay, so we have much less protein-coding protein genes than people expect. And I think nematode worms have about the same um, and flies have a few less. So, you know. It's not the number of genes that's making us so complex. It's not the number of genes making us so complex. But what, what, what's been a kind of funny historical irony is that we have discovered tens or hundreds of thousands of genes. It's just not the genes that people were looking for. And of course, we know that there's enhancers and there's small RNAs and so on. However, in the 90s, even, people discovered a couple of these weird uh, RNA-producing genes where they could not uh, recognize any open reading frame uh, that encodes a protein. And so, as biologists do, people thought that these were freak um, exceptions and, and kind of ignored them. So there's EXIST, which you know, balances uh, uh, um, gene dosage on the X chromosome in female mammals. And there's another one called H19. And, and people thought that they were just kind of exceptions and they were weird and there was no more to be discovered. Actually, very similar to what happened with microRNAs, exactly the same thing. People discovered a couple and then waited for 10 years and thought that they, there were no more to be found. Anyway, fast forward a bit and, we, you know, there was no, uh, the human genome is like this huge desert with very isolated kind of oases of protein coding genes amongst this huge sea of, of non-protein coding so-called junk DNA. And nobody really knew what was in that junk DNA until the technology came along to see what was going on there. And that's where this next generation sequencing comes in, uh, which I mentioned because it was only just at the tail end of microarrays and then with this next generation sequencing, could people start to observe that there was transcription taking place outside of these easy to identify protein coding genes. And there was a, there was a few very prescient uh, review articles by a guy called John Matic, who just retired very recently, who was a kind of, uh, you know, he, he was one of these people who kind of saw the field happen before it happened, but he was arguing in the early 2000s that there was uh, another layer of genetic regulation happening um, mediated by RNA. Um, that, and the RNA was kind of controlling all the protein coding genes and we should go looking in the RNA for the complexity. And... Um, and then fast forward to now, and what's happened is, is we've discovered tens of thousands of these long non-coding RNAs. And, and so just to summarize, long non-coding RNAs are basically just like a messenger RNA that has no message in it. There's no protein coding sequence in there. But in, in many other ways, it looks just like an mRNA, which people will be familiar with. It's capped, it's polydenylated, it's spliced, it's expressed. Um, many end up in the cytoplasm. And the... the a, it's provoked huge debates about whether 
they are functional or if they're transcriptional noise, and probably many are transcriptional noise. Um, a small number of them probably encode peptides that we hadn't managed to identify, but we don't think all of them do. And the race is really on. I mean, I spent years with many other people trying to map these RNAs, and we found way more than we ever expected to. But now the race is really on to, 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 to try and work out which of these things is doing something interesting, and particularly in the context of, of disease. Because another tangent is that they, make, they could make fantastic drug targets. And um, a lot of people are moving in that area to try and take advantage of these things as, as drug targets. But you know, along the way, there's been huge struggles because these long non-coding RNAs have certain properties which make them a real pain to study. And they kind of resist many of the, of the techniques that were very successful for, for protein coding genes just didn't work or worked poorly for the long non-coding RNAs. And that was, for many years, it was a big block really. And everyone was not twiddling their thumbs, but it was waiting for a breakthrough that could uh, open the floodgates, so to speak. And that happened a few years ago with CRISPR. So it sounds fascinating, you know, the, the, the long non-coding RNAs potentially is the, the elephant in the room that has been, been there or identified over uh, many, many years, probably underestimated in terms of its importance, uh, uninvestigated because of limitations within technology. And then when the technology comes along, really sort of a, a much greater appreciation of uh, one, how many of them there are, and to this sort of quandary where maybe the, the potentially functional ones are mixed in with ones that are not so functional or are doing something a little bit different and to, to try and, and decipher that puzzle, if you like, it sounds like uh, it's going to be very fruitful in, in the years to come. So you, so you mentioned CRISPR there. So uh, as I understand it, you, this development of this technology, CRISPR-Cas, which I think we, many of us will have heard of in the, the media as a, and in the scientific literature, as very much a sort of a gene editing tool. So how does application of this gene editing tool or CRISPR-Cas help you in your study of long non-coding RNAs? The issue with the long non-coding RNAs is that there's, in contrast to protein coding genes, you cannot just look at them with a simple tool and guess what they do. So that's, that's the, the big challenge. With proteins, you can give any high school student a sequence of, a, of an mRNA and they can paste that into a web server and give you a pretty good idea what, what the protein is doing. With a long non-coding RNA, we, we, we have no idea really about the so-called sequence function codes. We can't predict their function. So you have to resort to kind of more brute force approaches. Um, the brute force approaches is, is you know, high throughput screening where you basically just inhibit thousands of them one by one and ask in which case do you see something interesting change in the cell, for example. Um, now, people have done that for a long time with, again, with protein coding genes, and you can do it with RNAi and it's very effective and people have very nice libraries and uh, many, many screens have been done. But the link RNAs never responded particularly well to RNAi. We still don't know why that is. <clears throat> and so we were always waiting for a way of screening the link RNAs. Link RNAs, I mean long non-coding RNAs, it's our shorthand for non-coding RNAs. And so then we, uh, uh, pretty much as soon as CRISPR came out, I mean, what CRISPR allows you to do is to go to any 
place in the genome and kind of do anything you want to any place in the genome. And in, in the case of, of link RNAs, you want to, you can switch them off or you can switch them on, you can silence them or you can just dampen them down. And because you're acting directly on the gene rather than on the, on the RNA product of the gene, it, you know, it works basically for any type of gene, including the link RNAs. Um, and so within a quite a short time of the whole CRISPR hype occurring around, I think, 2014 or so, uh, it became clear to me and also my colleagues uh, in the lab um, and, and with Roderick, I kind of went to Roderick and I said, look, this technology is a, is a game changer and it can allow us to do all the stuff that we've been wanting to do for so long. And again, you know, Roger being Roger was extremely supportive and even, you know, uh, funded um, a position, uh, Estelle Aparicio, um, to, to start to work on this. And so we set up, and then nobody had really worked out how you were going to perturb a link RNA at that time. And so the way we came up with, you know, obviously CRISPR is like a kind of a pair of molecular scissors. It just cuts DNA, snips DNA like a scissors. Now, the problem is if you snip and, and then the cell repairs the gap pretty quickly, if you snip a, a link RNA, the cell will just repair the gap and you're back where you started. But what we worked out, and, and you know, we didn't invent this, other people have recently shown it was possible, is that you, if you recruit two CRISPR complexes to the gene, it, it'll snip them. And in a lot of cases, the, the cell will remove the intervening piece of DNA and, you, and it's basically a deletion. And so we, we guessed that you could delete. Now we didn't delete the whole link RNA, we delete the first piece, which is a, sufficient to silence the gene. Um, but the other cool thing about CRISPR is you can, is you can parallelize it. So you, you can not only do one gene at a time, but you can actually do thousands of genes at a single time. And that's incredibly powerful because that allows you to do screens. And you can also do it in a single plate of cells. It's this fantastic uh, so-called pool screening technology. You can snip out hundreds or thousands of these link RNAs in one plate of cells. So in, you know, if anyone can culture a plate of cells, you snip them all out and then you sequence them and you can work out which link RNA is driving different aspects of the phenotype of the cells. And uh, once we got that to work, I mean, pretty early on, it was clear you could do all kinds of things with that. I mean, you could really start to ask the big question of which of these thousands of link RNAs is actually functional or playing a role in a given, in a given process. So it was always pretty clear that that was going to be a, a big deal. And, and, you know, not just to us, but it's these, these obvious ideas. I mean, everyone starts to do them at the same time. Um, but, uh, but when I started in Bern, the idea was for a lab to do RNA and, and cancer research. And so we kind of pivoted pretty quickly to, you know, we had the technology and then we had fantastic colleagues in Bern who taught us about, um, about cancer, about the clinical needs in cancer, what we should start hunting for. And so we, we started applying this technology to looking for drug targets in, in lung cancer. And that's, that's what we're still doing today. It's fascinating. It's, a, it's, it's amazing how, how powerful that approach, uh, the CRISPR approach is, you know, parallel editing, targeted editing of, you know, thousands and thousands of potential lung non-coding RNAs in a single plate of cells. Um, and then obviously applying that to, to a screen to identify the ones that, that might be important to, in disease. So, so you mentioned uh, burn there towards the end, which was your 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 last location prior to your your current position here in Ireland, which uh, I, I believe 
it was a front uh, future research leaders award that brought you uh, back to Dublin and, and back to UCD. Uh, but uh, the, the timing of it ha has been a little bit different with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm sure that is, has thrown more than uh, a uh, one or two spanners into the works along the way. So how, how have you found setting up the, the lab in, in UCD during a pandemic and, and also probably still have some ties with the, your previous position in, uh, in Switzerland to, to deal with during this uh, transition period as well? It must, must have been difficult. I think, you know, I have to say a, a lot of people have suffered an awful lot more than, 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 than we have during this pandemic. I, I can't sure. really complain because we, it, it, there have even been, you know, slight upsides to this because essentially for the last uh, two years, we've been running labs in parallel in the, in the two sites. And um, it's, it's very complicated. I mean, uh, quite a lot of scientists go through this, right, when they're moving from one country to the next. And it's always very tough, um, particularly, I mean, the challenge is keeping the cohesion between the people in the different labs and the coordination. And the fact that it happened, that COVID happened just at that time, actually was was somewhat coincidental because it, it just meant that we took all of our meetings into Zoom and we just meet each other on Zoom, which we were going to have to do anyway. You know, so it, it was less disruptive in a relative way than it otherwise would have been. But, sure. um, you know, I will say it, it, it's been very tough for the people in the lab, particularly the people who came to Dublin. Um, Antonio and Michaela, who came to Dublin to set up the lab in Dublin, have been absolutely heroic because it, it's been very ha hard for them to move to a new department when I wasn't there day by day and to get everything set up themselves. Uh, and also, you know, having COVID scares and, and all the other restrictions and not being able to just wander down the corridor and ask someone's help. Um, they've been absolutely wonderful, but, you know, it worked, things happen and you can in the future blame every, every, every drawback or delay you've had, you just blame it on COVID now, like everyone else. And, uh, <laughs> I think, you know, certainly, certainly we have the momentum and the people in UCD have been absolutely fantastic in the SBS and beyond people have been so helpful and forthcoming and, um, and, you know, reached out uh, their hands to us to help us to get stuff started. So we've been infinitely grateful for that uh, warm, warm welcome we've had. And, and the you know, experiments are starting to happen. It's a, we're delayed like everybody else, but things are moving. And, um, you know, I think we're all pretty satisfied with the, with the transition. Fantastic. Rory, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Owen. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to the UCD Conway Institute Class Acts podcast. A big thank you to the Conway Institute researchers for sharing their stories and Dr. Owen Cummins for chatting with them. Subscribe and follow UCD Conway Institute wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>